everyone, and welcome to uh, the latest in our Policy and Practice podcast series. Um, I'm Isabel Morton, Head of ESG at McFarland's, and I'm joined today by David Gork, our Head of Public Policy here, and also Rachel Richardson, um, Head of Banking and Finance Policy. And uh, the subject of our, of our podcast today is COP26, uh, a roundup of COP26. This was uh, trailed as a, a make or break moment for the planet. There was a huge amount of noise and um, and, and in the lead up to, to the conference of the parties in Glasgow. And uh, the rhetoric was this was the last chance for the planet, one minute to midnight. Um, but in reality, it was never going to be the end of the story. Clearly, there were some very important headlines that came out of this, some positive, some not so positive. Um, but um, if, if I could first turn to David um, to, to give you to, to give us your main impressions of what do you think the, the main positives were that you can, that we can take from the, the fortnight of talks that have just finished? Well, I think if you're looking at it from the government's point of view, there's probably quite a lot that they can take out of it, given that there was uh, the fear that this was going to be seen to be you know, no movement forward whatsoever, that this was going to be kind of more of a Copenhagen-type cop than a Paris one. Um, where I think they'll be pleased is that the design of how a lot of this was done with, if you like, side deals done on specific issues that were announced in the first week, that seemed to work very well. And that gave the whole uh, COP a degree of momentum. So the deals done on deforestation, uh, done on methane, on green finance, for example, you know, shifted things along you know, quite nicely. Um, I also think that probably Alok Sharma had a good couple of weeks and you know, seemed to be well regarded by all of the uh, contributors to to the conference. So uh, I think if you're going to sort of measure it in a sort of grand, is this the make or break moment? Is this the big transformational uh, change that some people were demanding? No, it hasn't met that requirement. But in terms of sort of workmanlike progress, in a number of areas, you know, we've got reference to fossil fuels um, and coal explicitly in, in, in the communique in a way that hasn't been the case in the, in the past. Um, it still leaves quite a lot of work to be done. And there's still quite a lot of important work for the UK to do because uh, the presidency continues for, for, you know, for the next year until the next COP at Sharmal Sheikh. Um, but, you know, can the government sort of look back at it and as, a, as an organised event and point to certain areas of progress? Yes, they can. I think there's also a bigger question, though, whether, whether it was really enough. Um, and, and that's a political judgment. But in terms of, you know, did they get, did they get through the fortnight with positive things to point to? Yeah, I think they did. Thanks, David. And one of the um, one of the key focuses of this COP was finance and how the private sector was going to uh, contribute uh, as alongside government in, in, in partnership. Um, Rachel, can you give us some some thoughts on uh, on the outcome of the, the finance days? 
Sure. Um, yeah, we had the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, or affectionately known as GFANS, announced very publicly um, with, a, with a headline figure, a pretty staggering figure, actually, of 130 trillion US dollars of, of, of assets under management of the, of the members of the financial sector that, that have signed up to it. So that's, that's great and, and, it, and, is, and is a huge number. Um, I think it's also worth noting that, that prior to this, um, we did have some individual initiatives so that there was the net zero asset managers initiative and equivalent for the insurance industry um, and other subsectors of the financial sector, um, which has all already been focusing on aligning portfolios of assets with, with net zero. So, uh, so what's different? Um, I think there are some differences. Um, this, this initiative is supported by the UN. Um, there's a focus on industry collaboration. I think what we'll see here with this is, you know, the insurance sector collaborating with the asset management industry and everyone talking to each other. And collaboration is a is a really key um, area of focus, I think, for, for, for COP in general. And, and, and hopefully this will help move everybody along together, which is great. Um, it's supported by some global key players, Mark Carney being one of them, of course, um, science-based too, and with a focus on the financial opportunity to help channel money um, to the private from the private sector um, into some of the solutions that, that we all need to slow warming. Um, is it a, a huge success? I think the proof will be in the pudding to see um, how, how the members of the initiative actually act. Um, some of the subsector initiatives have been criticized. Um, so the kind of precursors to GFANS um, for things like um, uh, only committing small percentages of portfolios to transition to net zero. Um, however, I think in terms of those criticisms, it's important to bear in mind that um, they've, they've given reasons why they have struggled to transition larger volumes of their portfolios over. And I, and I think it's it's short-sighted not to look at some of those reasons before, before you make um, overarching judgments. Data has been, um, has been um, reflected as being one of the key issues. And I think we, we could have seen a bit more in terms of government policy um, and law and regulation coming in just to help with some of some of those changes. And I think those will be coming down the track too. Yes, because when you're looking at allocation of capital towards sustainable goals, and that's been the main, one of the main criticisms that we've seen is that there's just this patchwork of different frameworks and it's very unclear as to you know, how you can compare various standards and, it, and therefore difficult to know whether uh, the allocation of capital is having the impact that you want it to have. And there was a, it was a positive move um, on that front um, by the um, the announcement by the IFRS with the new Sustainability Standards Board. Um, can you give us a bit of comment on that? Yeah, um, that's also part of uh, the UK's intention to be the world's first net zero aligned financial centre, which, which which sounds very exciting. Um, this, the specifics of that are not really clear yet. Um, but part of that and part of the ISSB, um, I think, will be to produce some plans for the lower carbon economy of, of how different businesses or, or asset managers will, will operate in a, in a lower carbon world. Um, 
the, the, the criticisms that people have said about those intentions are that um, that doesn't seem to be obliging um, businesses to actually set carbon reduction targets, for example, and it's a comply or explain basis. So, so effectively, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. You just have to sort of explain why. Um, the intention there, I think, is to have, have, have a greater degree of transparency and accountability. Um, and that does tie into the government's greening finance roadmap to sustainable investing that, that was also announced in the run-up to COP um, and the, the UK's version of the EU's SFDR. Um, and, and, and the ISSB is, is, is a really exciting part of that because what their intention is, and, and I think we await, we await more details as to the specifics, but, but their intention is to really be that global reporting standard. And, 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 and they make reference to things like TCFD, which many businesses are already reporting against. It would be a shame to make people start again, but it, it does really sound like the intention is to take what's there, take what people are already doing. And, and, and drawing it together rather than saying, oh, here's another initiative, please do X, Y, and Z in addition to what you're already doing. Um, so actually, that, that could be really exciting. They, they also have an ambition that they will um, require certain minimum disclosures um, and, and verify some ESG claims, which is also quite exciting, which will hopefully reduce greenwashing. Um, we wait to hear more, but I think that's a really, really positive step. I don't know whether you agree, Izzy. No, I know I do. Thanks, Rachel. And, and I think a lot of the commentary that's come out of, of the last two weeks sort of emphasised the um, how much the private sector has been involved in uh, pushing things forward, and actually, in how in some ways the private sector is ahead of government in their ambitions. And, uh, and this is a point I wanted to, to raise with you, David, in, in the, uh, the context of the politics around this. Do you think it is? fundamentally very helpful that you have businesses that are uh, are being very publicly more ambitious around this the rate the speed of their decarbonization coupled with the huge and increased activism that we saw sort of from the grassroots level around this cop that those two forces are kind of helpful signals to government that they could be perhaps braver on policy than they have been in the past. Because well, clearly I, the difficult decisions haven't yet been made. They they, they haven't. I, I think that's right. Um, look, from the government's perspective, of course, the more that businesses do in this field, then that takes a little bit of the pressure off. Uh, so, so that that makes life easier for for governments if if the private sector is going to be getting on and doing a lot of this, reducing carbon emissions, innovating, finding technological solutions. Then that's that's clearly very good news for 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 the government uh, for governments generally. Um, and in terms of the sort of activist um, sort of movements and so on, I mean it's an interesting one because to some extent there's no doubt that sort of that the sort of activists have moved the political debate along and, and perhaps make certain policies more deliverable than they would otherwise have been. But you're also conscious that in some places, such as the US, climate change policy is incredibly contentious and really quite partisan. Now, that isn't where we are now in the UK, but there are risks that it will become more partisan. Um, you know, at the moment, and, and I'm you know, getting quite political here, I think you know, both parties 
talk the talk and this is what we're going to do and you know very ambitious in terms of their rhetoric um but you know if you're really going to um deliver on net zero on the time frame that we're talking about uh then you probably need to go further and faster on things like carbon pricing um and if you're going to go down the route of carbon pricing then this is going to involve certain costs for the public that's that's the point of it um and and that's where you know, you run into some difficulties here and so you know that that is where the debate hasn't really kicked off and this is where you're going to be critical of cop 26 it's the same criticism that you could make of the previous 25 cops is that you know those tough decisions when it comes to implementation it's all very well having ambitious targets but how do you get from where we are today to where we need to be um by you know 2030 2035 let alone 2050 you probably need to make some pretty tough decisions on carbon pricing uh, and of course is he as um as you know we've we've had um Dieter Helm speaking to uh to McFarlane's uh internal people and uh and some of our clients but yeah, on that very subject, and he's been making the argument about, you know, you've got to put a price on this, and that means carbon taxes. And if you don't want to just export your carbon emissions, you need to have some kind of carbon uh, border adjustment mechanism, um, which is a really interesting area of policy, um, but comes with significant political risks. Yes, on, on that subject, um, one of the areas of progress in COP was that the Article 6 framework was moved along um, in uh, following on from Paris. And the Article 6 framework is, uh, is going to govern the rules for the global carbon market. And we now, since Glasgow, have a draft text which, text which outlines uh, how that might look. And this has been an area of huge controversy um, for for reasons around you know the, the quality of the, the of the the credits, the double counting, how this this interacts with indigenous rights and all sorts of of, of other issues, um, but progress has been made, and as a result, you know, arguably we are moving towards um, if you combine that with the scaling of the voluntary carbon markets based on the same set of rules, we are moving towards. A, a more uniform carbon price and development of that. So you know, that may be coming more through the back door um, than through a uh, a, a carbon uh, carbon tax uh, being introduced um, in uh, unilaterally. Um, and the uh, I suppose the, the other uh, the other way in which um, the uh, the pricing of uh, of a of extraterritorial carbon could be incorporated and developed is uh, through all of these net zero commitments that are being made, especially by by corporates, because a a proper net zero commitment that's science-based and under science-based targets necessarily involves looking at the entire value chain of a business. So for a, for an international business, that will be that will include uh, carbon that is you know, effectively extraterritorial. So if those are if there is a lot of increased scrutiny around net zero targets and around real reductions of emissions as well as offsets, um, then again we could be seeing progress in that area just through a, a slightly different route. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, an, it's an interesting one. I mean, there's an important point here, which um, Dieter Helm makes, uh, which is what really matters is not where carbon is emitted, it's how much is emitted. And, and you know, a, a large element of the reduction in carbon emissions produced in the UK um, is as a consequence of us exporting quite a lot of our industry and importing uh, a lot of goods uh, and you know from the likes of China and so on and you know as a uh, you know free traders will say it's 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 good to be able to you know imports are good they're not a bad thing uh, but it does mean the externalities are not properly incorporated which is why you need a, a a carbon price now you can you can get to a carbon price through tax or you can get there through trading systems um you know there's a debate to be had as to which is which is better I, I suspect politically um, emission trading schemes are perhaps easier to land because perhaps there isn't quite the same transparency to the end user. Um, carbon taxes are probably less bureaucratic, um, but you've kind of got this this challenge about how do you how do you do that in a world of uh, uh, of international trade? Um, you know, how do you properly price? carbon that has been emitted you know, somewhere around the world and, and trying to solve that problem is immensely difficult uh, and yes you know a lot of focus on sort of trading schemes and what have you um, but whether you, you know, the 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 Dieter Helm argument is that in truth a carbon tax a unified carbon tax um, you know, has one single price for carbon uh, across the economy is the most efficient way that you could do that. You might just start with with the key industries. Um, so you, you do you, know, you look at steel and fertilizer and uh, um, uh, aluminium. I think I mean there's, there's 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 about five key ones which make up the great bulk of it. Um, but there's there's clearly a sort of going to be an ongoing debate as to whether the, the, we've got the right mechanisms in place to properly uh, price carbon. Uh, and you know, there is, there's certainly a view to be said that unless and until you have done that, um, all these COPs with all the ambitious targets that you like never actually going you know, to properly deliver the reduction in carbon emissions that you know, the scientists tell us we need if we want to hit 1.5 or even you know, 2 degrees. I mean, that's a, picking up on that point about uh, what the science is telling us. And I think it was very notable in the tone of everyone involved at COP and in the final text that the sense of urgency um, and the, the rhetoric around that did mirror the urgency that we saw in the IPCC report from August. So, you know, the the uh, the difference now between recognised between a two degree rise and a one point five degree rise is is front and center and the uh, and it is now an explicit goal uh, that we are aiming for 1.5 and not well before well below 2 and that has now been made much more explicit and having said that um depending on who you listen to um what we are now heading for is somewhere between 1.8 and 2.4 degrees um if all of the uh, pledges uh, if we follow through on all of the the pledges um, which is obviously not where we need to be. And, and that is um, one of the reasons I understand why the, uh, especially the, the vulnerable climate, vulnerable countries were really pushing for countries to come back to the table 
in a year um, in in Egypt next year with increased ambition on their nationally determined contributions um, so that we can try and close the gap uh, towards 1.5. So we 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 are, have a prospect of an equal amount of fanfare going into uh, Egypt uh, uh, 2022. Um, what else do you think might be on the agenda for COP 27, and what might what progress might we expect in the in the next 12 months? Well, I don't know who's going to have first um, stab at that. I mean, I think it's a diff- it's a fair question. Is it's quite a difficult one to to know uh, for sure. I mean, I, I I mean, I'm sort of struck by the fact that. You know, the, the gap between 1.5 and 1.8 is, to state the obvious, significantly less than the gap between 1.8 and 2.4. Uh, and the reason I make that point is, you know, quite a lot of this is, is about how do you, you know, how do countries meet their NDCs? Um, you know, how, how, how do, how do the promises turn into reality? And so, you know, my, my sense is the debate is going to have to move. Um, if if you know if we are you know, properly focused on 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 getting to as as, as low an increase since pre-industrialized temperatures as we possibly can, it, it is going to have to move a little bit more not on on the sort of high rhetoric and big ambitions, but in terms of meeting existing commitments and exactly how do we go about doing that. Um, that's why I, you know, I, I do think the debate about pricing carbon, politically difficult though it is, will will move to the the centre of this debate because it's, uh, yeah, and I can I can understand. I've, I've been a politician. I can understand um, why it's it's much easier to sort of say we've got to keep the public with us and we've just got to promise it's lots of nice things and win win win. Um, but if you if you really want to you know, reduce the amount of carbon that you're emitting, you're going to have to not start making some hard choices. And I just think that perhaps the next year really ought to be one where those harder choices come into greater focus. And from from my side, I mean, I know that this year that the G20 agreed to end financing coal overseas, but but not at home. It would it would be nice to see that change to be at home as well as well as overseas. Um, that that could be. Um, the, the opt- optimist view um, that there's been lots, lots of commentary in the press about the loss and damage for for, for poorer nations. Um, again, it would be nice to see people following through on their commitments and potentially increasing some of those numbers. Um, we'll have to see. And 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 David has already spoken about um, the shift from carbon emissions to carbon consumption, um, and and the use of a of a carbon tax and with a border adjustment to um to, to to achieve that, and 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 I can only echo what he said there. Um, but but as he said, it can be quite difficult. A year is quite a short period of time, really, in reality, in the world. Um, and perhaps it's actually, I don't know, COP twenty eight, COP twenty nine. It, it will that be too late for some nations, for for some areas of the world? Um, it, it, there is a there is a greater degree of urgency now, and I hope that some of these things will come on the table, if not the next COP, but but the following one. 
Well, thank you both so much for your for your thoughts and commentary on that. And as with all of these COPs, this is uh, a, a process rather than a single one fits all solution. Um, and so we will have to see how things develop in the in the next year. Um, there's clearly some positives come out of this, but clearly lots of work to be done and not enough. Lots of uh, very dramatic rhetoric in the uh, in, in the policy document, but remains to be seen whether there's any teeth behind that. Um, we'll be giving this a lot more consideration uh, as the year develops, and we'll be putting together some further podcasts on specialist topics, including sustainable finance, uh, the impact on real estate and, and other topics, including the carbon taxes topic that David covered earlier. Um, thank you so much for joining us. 